Hey, everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. All right, we are live from the Campus Compact National Conference in Indianapolis, Indiana. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Sellickson, President of Campus Compact, losing my voice on the second day of the conference. <laughs> Andrew's done a lot of talking. So um, before I introduce our guests for this special live recording, Andrew, we are at the National Conference in Indianapolis. Why don't you give us just a few conference facts? Well, we have a lot of people here. So that's one thing about the conference. We unfortunately had to close registration months, six weeks ago. We have 600 plus people here. Uh, it's been great. We had another bunch of people for a summit of presidents and chancellors yesterday. Uh, we can hear whether other people agree with this, but I feel like uh, people are really enthusiastic. I've been learning a ton of stuff from formal presentations, from talking to people here at the conference. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just a great gathering. We're now in the habit of doing these every two years. We anticipate that the next one will be out on the West Coast, having done one in the East and now the Midwest. Uh, so yeah, so next time folks who are listening but aren't here can get in on the action. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we do have three guests today, and um, I'll just I'll introduce them briefly right now, and then we're each going to kind of take a turn, just doing a little mini interview with them, again, to talk a little bit about what they're presenting about here at the conference and give a little insight into that. Um, so with us today, we have Mark Wilson, the Director of Civic Learning Initiatives at the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at Auburn University. Azuri Gonzalez, the Director of Civic Engagement at the University of Texas, El Paso. And Ryan Gogan, Associate Professor of English at Western Michigan University. All our presenters here at the conference, so we're going to get a little insight into that. But first, Jar, what's been the highlight for you so far? Well, first and foremost, because we're right in my backyard here in Indianapolis, I get to sleep mostly in my own bed to come here. So last night I actually stayed, but it's kind of nice like to go home and have my own bed I can sleep in and get up and get ready. And I come here and it's like being at this national conference, which it is, but it's just right here. So that is first and foremost. But second, I've just appreciated all the stories that we've heard throughout this conference. I mean, that's core to the theme. But all the stories are different. I feel like this is a place where we are truly trying to listen to each other and listen across difference. And the panel this morning, I thought, was just absolutely brilliant. I mean, every speaker on that panel, I just, uh, I was like snapping my fingers, kind of. Like, yes, I love them. I want to talk to them. And I haven't gotten a chance to do that yet. But that has been the highlight for me. So tell us what the panel was about for those who are not here. Oh, yeah, sorry. So for our listeners who are not at the conference, the panel this morning was uh, organizations focused on connecting across difference through deliberative dialogue, essentially. Uh, so we had representatives, and you may have to jump in and help me out here, Andrew, but we had uh, Better Angels, we had Sustained Dialogue Institute. Uh, Essential Partners. Yes. And then Nick Longo is at Providence College. Yes. Andrew, how about you? What's a highlight? So there have been a lot, um, and I agree that was a terrific panel this morning. Uh, at the summit of presidents and chancellors yesterday, uh, there were a number of things that were great. One highlight for me was I got to have a kind of conversation in the front of the room with Tom Ehrlich, one of the founders of Campus Compact, former president of Indiana University, uh, and I think to many of us a really influential figure in, through his research, his leadership, his example. Um, but we also had, this is going to sound like I'm making a joke, but it's really true, a fascinating conversation about accreditation 
accreditation and the role that it can play in advancing the public purposes of higher education and a really good conversation about the way funders look at this work. And one of the lessons I took away both from the accreditation and the funding conversation was that there are people outside of higher education or outside of colleges and universities asking us to think bigger and take on big public challenges, the challenges of democratic practice, the challenges of uh, the manifestations of inequality and injustice in our communities. And that was just exciting to hear. I think it's, it's tough for higher education to change, but it's important that kind of there are some outside influences pushing us in those directions. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. And so the theme of the conference is around true stories, telling stories, and the keynote yesterday was Don Porter, who um, former attorney turned documentarian. We've actually had her on the podcast, so if you haven't listened to that episode, you can go back and find it, and it was really fascinating. JR did a great interview, but I thought what she said was just very, very interesting. She talked a lot about how, um, you know, one of the things you have to do with telling stories is not to simplify them, not to try to make it seem like it's not complex, when you're, especially like she's done documentaries on like the public defender system and different things like that. So you can't really simplify it, but you can help people see all the layers more clearly. And that was just a different way of thinking about it for me that I thought was really interesting. So um, wonderful. So we're gonna turn now to uh, just some kind of mini interviews with some of our conference presenters. I'm gonna turn it over uh, first to JR to talk to Mark Wilson. And that actually is a perfect transition because uh, we were able to connect before this podcast and so much of your work is based in storytelling. But before we get there, I'm curious, what has been your favorite part of the conference so far? I think the variety of presentations and opportunities. You can walk the hall and have coffee with uh, someone who has such prolific writing um, and research related to engagement uh, that these are your have been your mentors uh, through their text. And so all of a sudden you, you, you have a chance to get that book signed or just talk to them about their life and their work. While at the same time you meet so many young people um, who are so eager to be a part of this field and you're certain after you meet them that they're going to uh, make a difference in the field. And someday they may be looking at you like, oh, that's the guy who is the rock star. I know you hate that word, Emily, but the rock star in my world, right? And I get an opportunity to talk with him, so I couldn't agree more. I did attend your session earlier around dialogue and deliberative dialogue and getting people to connect. So much of your work is based on that human connection and stories. How do you translate that in the world of academia working with faculty who often want to start with statistics. <laughs> How do you get them to start with stories? Yeah, I think, I think for, for all of us who are in higher education, we are, are interested in conveying the knowledge that needs to be conveyed. Uh, but at the same time, the knowledge that, that needs to be conveyed is, is the knowledge of our personal lives and experiences that connect to that. Um, and so providing opportunities for students alongside community uh, to present their own stories uh, in a safe space, in a space that's uh, moderated by a neutral facilitator um, whose, whose emphasis is on the sharing of stories, allows us to connect with the issue in a different way. Doesn't mean that facts are irrelevant, uh, but, it, but it also, uh, our stories are as relevant in many cases. And you do this work with sixth graders as well, is that we correct? We do. We, we have a, uh, a collaboration with a local middle school in Auburn, Alabama. Um, the students in my Introduction in Community and Civic Engagement class, uh, whether they know it or not when they sign up for the course, they're going to be developed as moderators, as facil facilitators 
through the course uh, so that they can be neutral facilitators in a sixth grade classroom on the issue of bullying. Uh, and we had the project for one year uh, for different reasons and then the school said, you know, that that was an opportunity for our students to really take ownership of the issue, sit in a circle, not in rows and chairs, be shoulder to shoulder, eyeball to eyeball, and have a chance to, to talk about the issue and what they should do and what the school should do. It has implications for public policy. And so my goal as, a, as an instructor is for students to uh, not become the ones who have great scripts, but the ones who have great ears, and they listen, and they can respond and ask questions um, and model the kind of work that needs to take place for democracy to thrive. This may be a loaded question, however. <laughs> right. So when you're doing these workshops with faculty versus sixth graders, do you find sixth graders to be more open, or do you find faculty to be more open to connecting in these ways? Well, I bet you know the answer to that. <laughs> I think I do. Uh, and, and one thing, and I'll start to answer that question like this. We tell sixth graders and others, work with lots of different ages, that, uh, you know, we, they, they get extra points, you know, these imaginary extra points, but, uh, but they are doing really well when they can listen enough to respond and disagree with someone in the circle, um, but that they can do so respectfully. Um, and thoughtfully, and that they can agree with people and name that. Um, and so it's an opportunity um, not to tear down people, but to build up people. And unfortunately, um, in higher education, the, the, the way we uh, progress through the system is usually based on a different set of values. Mm -hmm. One question that makes me think about is, so, you, so this conference you did, the conversation on immigration. But you've done these conversations on various topics. Have you found any theme around the different topics where people are willing to connect? Is there an intersecting point that you've said, aha, uh -huh, regardless of the issue, people are willing to listen and to talk to each other, and here's the common theme that I found that connects all of that? Yeah, I think it, in, the, in the most successful cases, and by success I mean when people are listening as much as they're talking and they're really striving to see uh, what they hold valuable, where the tension is with what someone across the circle from them holds valuable, um, but seeking to find some common ground that can lead to action. Um, and in many cases, uh, no matter whether it's a, a faculty department, a college, or a community, uh, we are all in our own worlds, no matter the size, um, and so the opportunity for people to come together who may be skeptical about the conversation, uh, but when they find out that it, it's not a conversation to convince them of something, um, except convince them to listen to their neighbors and seek to understand, um, then oftentimes we find that people who didn't know each other find some common ground for action, but whether it be through their organizations or whether they uh, live in the, on the same street and they had not met each other before. Uh, and so in the sharing comes the commonality. People still leave with differences, and that's fine. Um, but they find something um, that they can do in their community together uh, to bring forward the progress they hope for. Thank you for that. We'll have time for audience questions toward the end. Thank you. Okay, so I get to ask a few questions of Asuda Gonzalez, University of Texas, El Paso. So um, you just had your session right before this, uh, talking a little bit about your civic action plan, which, okay, so full disclosure, right, we've already talked about yes. this, <laughs> isn't done. 
<laughs> isn't uh, published for public consumption. Okay. So, um, but I was, your, your session was really interesting. And one of the things you talked about a lot that I have also seen is just that the greatest value of doing these, this type of a plan is in the process. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what your process has been and how that's been different than maybe how things have happened in the past? Sure, but I was so ready to talk about my favorite thing of the conference. Oh my god, I forgot! <laughs> <laughs> okay, can, start can there. Yeah, start there, start there. Highlight of the conference. You know what? I, <laughs> I was just so excited I to know. dive into your civic action plan. No, and of course, and, and um, thank you so much for inviting me, but you know what? I've enjoyed so many aspects of that, and you started to talk about Don Porter and her uh, keynote, and I really enjoyed that, but since you mentioned that one, and it ties into what I've enjoyed about this conference, is the intentional inclusivity. Uh, I have felt it. Um, there, of, oftentimes, you you see it in writing, you see the terms, you see the concepts or themes of conferences where you talk about diversity, inclusion, equity, justice, and it stays on the paper, and it doesn't quite translate or uh, transcend uh, the walls or the rooms. Um, but this conference, it's felt very inclusive, and I have really enjoyed that and the openness for, for dialogue and that intentionality. And I think it's not just for the benefit of those of us who are participating, but I think we can appreciate it and then take it back to our own spaces and potentially share that same experience with more people, however it is that we're able to to facilitate that. So thank you yes. for the opportunity to share that. Well, thank you. I'm sorry I forgot to ask, and I really appreciate you saying that. And um, there, the, a lot of work has gone into that, so I know that will be well-received. But also, um, I feel it too. Just I feel it, like there's a good vibe, yeah. good energy happening. Like a lot of people really open, a lot of people being vulnerable, you know, really talking about where they are with things, and that's been interesting to me, too. It is. So, so yes. okay, <laughs> back to your civic action plan. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the process and what has right. really stood out for you. Right. Um, I'll try to keep that as, as succinct as possible, but I guess we can summarize it as a form of agency that we've had at our institution. Um, it's definitely in line with our uh, intent to plan around community engagement, civic action planning. Um, we're also in the process of reclassifying for the Carnegie classification. We just finished with accreditation and it's been fun as well. Um, fun, <laughs> we, okay. Right, yeah, sure. absolutely. And so we have our quality enhancement plan that is all about engagement. So, you know, the streams have aligned for us to really uh, make use of the moment so the civic action plan really came at a wonderful time. So we did sign on in September and uh, we have a community engagement council that has taken it on and has representation from all the units on campus. And so we charged, um, we basically, I should first say that we took the approach of what are we doing great and how can we be better? And then also acknowledging that the different units and the different individuals were at different places in the spectrum of community engagement. And we define that roughly from awareness of even what community engagement is, what it looks like, to uh, bold, you know, action of transforming our institution and revamping, you know, the whole tenure and promotion process and how knowledge is constructed as we want it to, um, you know, 
strive for, where knowledge is a little bit more uh, democratic. Um, but in order for us to have this civic action plan for the institution, we couldn't form a plan that we saw as aspirational and just hope that everybody would just buy into it. We thought that the most more realistic approach was if we formed a plan where everybody had some kind of stake in it and that it was moving them from the place they were to a place forward. Um, and then by way of that, you know, uh, we would have a document that allowed us to um, communicate that mm -hmm. across units, across fields, and um, across uh, the colleges. So that's the approach that we've taken. And while we were close to meeting the exact year deadline, we realized that we would be missing an opportunity if we stopped there. We were in transition uh, of having a new provost, of having several new deans, uh, deans who right now are interim deans. And so if we made this plan so finished and, and just one that we were now gonna be holding ourselves accountable to, then we would miss the opportunity to then integrate what the new leadership wanted to put in there. So then we said, you know what, we'll, we'll hold off a little bit on that deadline and take advantage of that. But we reference that plan for every conversation that we have. We say, well, the civic action plan says this, and the civic action plan, because we have had um, each unit submit their civic action plan, uh, and we asked them for two to three goals, you know, um, and to define it whether it was through assessment, community impact, uh, capacity building, recognition. Um, and so now we are in the process of using it as a way to capture all the items that we still need to work on while we are documenting for the reclassification process for Carnegie. Um, so, so we're almost there and, and we'll definitely share it because sharing is caring. Um, but in the meantime, we'll, we're definitely making use of the process for, for us to make wave in community engagement. So there were two things in your presentation that I thought were really important and interesting. One was you talked about the need to help um, people see themselves as community engagement scholars, to yes. self-identify that way and then become ambassadors yes. of that. I think that's so true, and I'd be very interested in hearing some ways that you've seen that take place. Sure. So uh, I've been at the university for 16 years now and we've had waves of faculty members um, in some cases it depends on whether they were tenure track in the first place whether they've been lecturers I mean we have so many different people who engage um, but we never had built a strong coalition of faculty members um, we would have meetings and things of the sort but we did we realized that they need this space to talk to one another sometimes they're the one person in their department who does this work and even then they may or may not um, articulate it as community engaged scholarship or community engagement uh, depending on on their discipline um, so we realized that we needed to uh, have them meet one another more um, intentionally and we had a town hall about five years ago and so it was our way to unearth people from the institution and see well let's see who comes and we ended up with about 40 people and then from there we established a community of practice um, and so from there we started to say you know we we're, we're all doing very similar things. We're just calling them something very different. And there's frameworks for this. So there was more interest. And then affinity groups started forming organically as they should in a community of practice. And so some were more about the practitioner side of, of teaching. Others were more so about capacity building and the change in the institution. And um, others were more about the philosophical dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, so we provided the spaces for that. And can I, I don't think I have this copyrighted, but it's the um, spaces for the promotion and advancement of community engagement scholarship so those are our spaces um, 
And so we realized that if they didn't self-identify that, then we couldn't build this identity collectively. Um, so since then, uh, we've had an institute, we've had uh, capacity or a competency that we strive for, and we realized that people were still hesitant to call themselves community-engaged scholars unless they had built this huge CV of community-engaged scholars right. published, and therefore they could not call themselves scholars. But we said, no, you're probably the most expert in the room at any given time because you are exploring the subject and we are um, hoping that you will then speak more um, with more confidence about it and and advocate for it so that then other people can recognize it and we can make um, progress as far as evaluating this when we come across it in the um, tenure and promotion packet. So that was our yep. intent there. Yeah, we definitely need more advocates, so I appreciate the focus on that. So final thing I just, we talked a little bit about this, but I, my, some of my background is in um, political and community organizing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you said the same, and a lot of what you were describing was organizing Absolutely. and how you were going about <laughs> it across campus. And even, if I may, kind of getting a vote count as things went through <laughs> faculty senate. So can you talk a little bit about how you've used some of those principles to... Yes bring people along and make things happen at the institution? Yeah, so first we built a community among faculty members to to kind of identify one another, because sometimes you walk into the room and you don't know who's with you, right? Um, so by providing these spaces, people knew uh, who could speak to community-engaged scholarship or who could speak to um, this work. And so when, so we build that kind of uh, community around it. And so when we started to propose the language, we made sure that we covered our bases with our leadership and our deans to make sure that there weren't going to be any uh, big problems there. Um, and then when we uh, knew where this needed to be presented, of course, we took notice of who the president was of the faculty senate, who long advocate of community engagement, even though for years she might have not called it that. It was just what she uh, was inclined to do and she did it so well. Uh, and then the committee level, and we realized that at the committee level, uh, five of the seven people were people that had now self-identified as community-engaged scholars. So we knew what kind of arguments to go in there with. And I, by we, I say my, my colleagues, because I'm not faculty, so my faculty fellows are the ones who advocated for this um, language change. And so we went in there, and so the count was there, although we didn't call it count, we just, you know, took note. And then once the, it hit the floor of, of the faculty senate, we also um, had an, an idea of the number of people that would probably be in favor, and we really didn't have any roadblocks once we got to the faculty senate, because by then we knew who we could count on, and we knew who understood, and we knew who would be in favor of this because they knew the implications and the positive implications of it. Right. Well, I could ask you a whole bunch more questions, but I don't think we have time. So thank you so much thank for you. that. I really appreciate it. Very interesting process. And we'll turn it over to Andrew. All right. And it's my pleasure to ask a few questions of Brian Gogan of Western Michigan University. Uh, so, Brian, you are doing something which I love when it happens, which is you're doing some research for us, for Campus Compact, and hopefully for you too. But yes. we appreciate it immensely. <laughs> and um, so why don't you... Two-part question. Tell us a little bit about what's the project. Sure. And I think it's interesting that you're a professor of English doing this project. So how does your own scholarly background connect 
to the, the kinds of investigations you're doing. Sure. Well, uh, and I'll answer this. Oh, and I forgot the question about the best <laughs> thing about the conference. I can't believe it. All right. Hold that question. Sounds good. And tell yeah. us your favorite thing about the conference. Well, so the thing with going third on this panel is I've got three things. I've had a lot of time to think about what I've enjoyed the most about this conference. Uh, and I would echo JR's um, uh, endorsement of the opening session today. Um, I'm a scholar of rhetoric, and that's uh, kind of for forecasting my uh, answer to your, your other question. So learning about how individuals communicate, dialogue, some strategies that we heard from all the four presenters was very, very, very valuable. Um, this morning I also came down the escalator and I saw our 2017 uh, Newman Fellow from Western Michigan University, Alexis Lenderman, so that was uh, encouraging. And I just attended a wonderful session, presenter from the University of Vermont and San Francisco University, I believe, University of San Francisco, on the stories that images tell, so images of service learning, images of community engagement. What are these pictures telling us about the work that we do? And that was just a, a very engaging presentation and wonderful discussion afterwards. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so now, yeah. <laughs> if we can remember that two-part question from a few minutes yeah. ago, go right ahead. So as I said, I, I specialize in rhetoric and professional writing. So I teach courses in the English department to undergraduate students primarily, um, and, and many client-based projects, service learning projects, where individuals are doing writing work for organizations, uh, writing a grant proposal, writing manuals. Uh, so the, the writing that gets activity done in organizations. So. Um, Last January, I received uh, an invitation from uh, an administrator on my campus to join an already assembled team that was working on our campus civic action plan. And it was a 20-person team. It involved administrators, faculty members, staff, students, and uh, community members as well, uh, city government officials and some community partners, long-standing community partners. And uh, basically, the, the team had developed some really great ideas, um, had some wonderful concepts, but for the actual writing of the plan, they were hitting some roadblocks. So I was brought in and said, you know, hey, can you lead this writing team? And it was right up my alley. Um, service learning, community engagement, but also leading collaborative teams in the writing of documents. So um, as I was doing that, and as our team was kind of negotiating definitions, struggling with prioritizing one action item over another, I became really interested in how other teams across uh, the nation uh, were approaching kind of the same sets of questions. And uh, Campus Compact offered a wealth of resources from the knowledge hubs to the coaching to um, the guidance documents online and some of even uh, state level uh, tools that were, you know, uh, that were shared uh, you, through Campus Compact's website. Uh, so that helped the process, but I was also interested in the product and looking at the product that uh, the team that I was a part of turned out, right? I, I wanted to see what was happening uh, with the products, the, the civic action plans that were being produced by other uh, teams around the nation. So the lens that I brought to this is this notion of rhetorical framing. Campus Compact articulated in their action statement five principles, five commitments, right? Value statements, if you will. And that came first. And it was up to all of your member institutions to take those statements and uh, make them actionable, right? So in that movement, right, uh, I'm interested in kind of the framing or the reframing of those initial five themes. See how they travel across time and across documents. How are campuses making sense of the commitments? And um, what does that tell us about the future of civic engagement as compa campus compact member institutions? So 
what have you found? What are some things that jump out as kind of the key, uh, yeah, the key elements of that, or and especially if you know something about the future, we always sure. want to know that. Uh, well, uh, generally, one of the one of the guidance uh, documents, the uh, creating a great campus civic action plan that uh, Campus Compact published, offered three general approaches that campuses could take. Right, the uh, partnership platform partnership, the signature initiative, or the collaborative impact network and a collective impact network, excuse me. Um, generally, there are, uh, I think more of the campuses I see are adopting the collective impact network model. There are some really strong platform initiatives and signature initiatives. Um, and those later two models uh, are able to be very concrete, especially the platform partnership, where you have universities that are building on existing partnerships um, really focusing intently on one uh, area of work. Those are very specific, kind of concrete plans. Um, and the collective impact networks are bringing together a broad base of constituents and stakeholders in ways that might be less concrete, but at the same time have some very actionable outcomes uh, associated with those. So that's one observation. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a couple of the other ones looked at commitment one and commitment four in particular, and this is what I kind of shared with audiences uh, a few days back um, here at this conference. It was yesterday, actually. I don't know. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, the, interesting, the interesting thing that I'm seeing with commitment one, commitment four, uh, how justice equity, which appear in both of those uh, two commitments. Commitment one is fighting for a more just and equitable uh, society. Uh, commitment four, I'm paraphrasing here, is challenging inequalities. So I've been interested to see how that language, language about equity, uh, inequality or equality and justice is picked up through the plans. And uh, one of the, the interesting things that I'm seeing are, are the campus civic action plans that are shared online are taking a positive approach to, to those issues. And so rather than focusing on inequity and inequalities, we're focusing on promoting equity and promoting equality. And equity is the uh, preferred term uh, when we look at, at those particular uh, terms there. And um, again, uh, many different ways that justice is approached, um, often as a goal, right? A goal, a virtue, um, something that we can work toward. And it also, justice is, um, presented as something that we can shift our awareness of. So it's a, a perceptual issue, right? We can become aware of it, we can see it through a new lens and constantly work toward it. And that's encouraging from my perspective. I wonder if you have, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me uh, when you describe the kind of work that's going on on these campuses, the kind of deliberative work of the teams, mm -hmm. that actually, it parallels the process of creating the 30th anniversary action statement that is the kickoff for this. We had, I don't know, 70 people in a room in Minneapolis working through drafts. And the, the idea of saying we should articulate a set of goals and then invite campuses to build plans, that came through that deliberative practice. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any reflections on kind of that and what you see in the statement or what you mm -hmm. imagine or just anything that kind of has popped out to you as you've worked on this. One of the rich things about the commitments are they are um, they're flexible, right? Um, they're specific in, in their own areas. And I was uh, talking to a team from IUPUI that's conducting some research on the process behind these plans, right? And they were interpreting the commitments a certain way. I was interpreting them a certain way. Um, they are 
flexible enough that campuses can really uh, latch onto them. They can really find their grounding, I think, in each of the five commitments. What I see over across the civic action plans, some campuses choose to focus on you know, one or two, kind of a subset of those commitments, and really dig deeply into those commitments. Other campuses uh, you know, feel it's their duty to address all five, right? So you see in their action plans specific actions that will address those five. Um, the, with the collective writing of any document, um, there's always a, a constant negotiation that goes on. Um, but for that product, the statement of commitments, to be useful, you have to have some buy-in, some identification with those commitments and values. And um, all of the civic action plans that I have read, um, so we're up to just about 100 now, I think a little over, um, have keyed into one or more commitments as speaking specifically to their campus context and campus culture. So um, I think your team was successful. That's great to hear. I mean, I have to admit, I get incredibly excited hearing about the work that both of you have just described because it, it was what we hoped that we would help catalyze. Uh, and so it's really gratifying to just hear the, the products of it. Uh, we up to the next big thing? All right, I think uh, questions okay. from the audience. Yeah, so now we have time. You guys can ask questions. You guys can ask questions of each other. Um, it's it's freewheeling time, so let's freewheel. So basically, if you're in the audience, put a hand in the air. Somebody will <laughs> run at you with a microphone. Run at you. That's yeah. Yeah. Or terrifying. Oh, yeah. Anybody a first-time attendee? All right. Oh, well, nice. nice. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who wants to share their highlight? I'm just going to walk up to somebody if nobody... <laughs> or she'll throw them I, You know, I'm going to hand the mic to the brave soul who sat in the front row. <laughs> I'm so in trouble. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Travis Lovett. I'm here from Harvard College, uh, from Phillips Brooks House, our Center for Public Service and Engaged Scholarship. And it, most recently, in the last uh, year and a half, uh, we've had conversations for a few years, but... Uh, we've recently pivoted to focus more on the intersection between academics and, and community service. Uh, so much of what we've been doing had been branded as extracurricular. We're trying to think about what we're doing as co-curricular. Um, I guess a question I would have for the, the panelists is just to think about where do you see uh, Campus Compact going over the next couple of years? And just I, I've seen this as a really, I think, a really transformative space and meeting a need that there's so many, it feels like there's so many smaller groups tr that are having really terrific discussions, but not one convener. And just to get a feel for um, where, where does, how, I guess, could Campus Compact fill that need and where, where do you see it going next? Well, I'll speak a little bit to what I'm seeing in the plans, and I think it echoes what, what we've heard from the co-panelists here. Um, Campus Compact, as an organization and as a movement, I think is uh, um, embedding itself in the strategic direction of uh, universities across the nation. Almost, almost all of the civic action plans reference explicitly a strategic action planning process that has occurred or is ongoing at their university. I know at my own university, crafting or composing and implementing a campus compact, campus civic action plan was listed in our university strategic plan, academic affairs strategic plan, so that alignment happened. And um, uh, I think that kind of strategic embedding is important. 
But you're asking what we think Campus Compact is going to be doing in the next yeah, few years? Yeah, <laughs> I guess in the area that we're, tr we're trying to think, and just full disclosure, we're going through a strategic planning right, process right. now, and um, really just trying to think about where we can go as an, as an institution. And, and we, we've really kind of struggled, I think, that because, there, because service happens in so many different places, mm -hmm. And we're explicitly working with undergrads and what the graduate schools are doing. And uh, there's there's a lot of tr terrific action, but to try to kind of think about how we convene that, we're, we're sometimes struggling to see ourselves as the convener. And I, I feel like that Campus Compact, especially the last few years, just seems like that there's a lot of energy right. around this. And I'm, I'm and very excited yeah, about work. I'm excited about that. Yeah, and I, I hear you. And I think that um, if I could say is that I've seen Campus Compact as um, my professional development source, because yeah. like many people in this field, we entered it without a job description. Um, so this was 15 years for me, and uh, my first uh, professional development was a two years in the job, and it was a, one of the retreats that you all held for directors. And so it's been very helpful. So I see Campus Compact as the ones who could really break ground for some of us who can only do so much individually within our own institutions. So when we do see what other institutions are doing and what struggles they're having, it helps us reference it. Um, but what I'm also seeing and what I'm excited about is the, let, let's take it just one more step forward as far as breaking these barri barriers that really get in the way of doing truly impactful, war impactful work in our communities. Where we start talking about, you know, what is publishable, what is knowledge, what is what is ultimately gonna hold our institutions to really help our communities. It's, we're having to constantly translate, negotiate, our existing standards within higher education, within the disciplines, so, um, and I think that we've made a lot of progress as institutions, but we still have to permeate the disciplines themselves because that also dictates what is legitimate. And if we truly want to make an impact in our communities, we really need to deconstruct or at least make more space um, for this kind of work to happen in a legitimate form and in a way that does not uh, jeopardize people's careers. I would love to hear Andrew's response to that question uh, in just a second. But but building on that, I think there is a, a, a true acknowledgement um, in a good, positive, productive way of how difficult this work is um, so that we're not here simply to celebrate all of the wonderful work we have done. There's plenty to celebrate, but we're also very honest about um, how difficult this work can be. And so I think that's very healthy for a conference and for an organization, and it seems like it reflects the experiences that many of us have in our different institutions. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, and, and I think this is reflected in the work of the civic action planning process, is that I think we've become more and more aware as a network of the need to think about transformation of individual higher education institutions of the higher education sector. That we essentially have a model of higher education that, you know, is roughly, uh, it's on a path that started in late medieval, early modern Europe. Uh, you know, our disciplinary understandings are kind of born in like 19th century Germany, right, essentially. And we have changed those things in various ways, but we also are still bound by frameworks that were created to educate a small slice of elite society, essentially for the purpose of maintaining the society largely as it was. And those aren't our values anymore. I think of, I mean, they're kind of, they're not democratic values in a fundamental way, small d democratic. Uh, they are incompatible with the kind of diverse society that we have become. And I see us as just playing one small role in trying to foster 
the transformation of our institutions to reflect our real values and the values we need to embrace to be successful given who we have become and, and what we need to be to make our society sustainable, to live in a sustainable way on the planet, et cetera. And that's like a huge tall order and it's in nobody's job description. And so the only way you kind of get around that is to bring people together and build movements and get people talking and thinking together and imagining actions they can take in their places uh, discreetly, in their institutions, in their departments, in their classrooms, but also then coming together and creating spaces to be re-energized, to be challenged, to you know, in, embrace kind of new ways of thinking and seeing. So that's, I hope we play some role in helping to make all that sort of possible for people, but ultimately it's about everybody taking action together. Great, so I think we have time for another, probably just one more question, but who else that's here wants to ask? We've got something over here, great. Hi, I'm uh, Megan Faber-Hartline from Trinity College, where I'm the Associate Director of Community Learning. And um, as I was hearing all of you guys talk about what's what you see coming in the future and all of the work that each of you have done at your own institutions, I um, am hearing a lot about people who are thinking about the narratives of community engagement and how we um, work within those narratives at our own institution. And so my question for anyone on the panel who wants to jump in is how do we manage our own institution's narrative about community engagement in order to kind of align it with um, the actual work of what is happening by community engagement uh, professionals and community engaged faculty members on our campuses, especially as so many schools are centering this kind of work in strategic plans, making community engagement a pillar of the strategic plan or one of the five key areas. Um, because I feel like there, I feel like there are a lot of people and who are concerned about those elements of strategic plans being just sort of nominal and not really delving into the kind of work that we do and value. So, how would you guys? think about that, I guess. From what I picked up from your question, um, I, I think two things. One is the power of the pen, um, right? Um, so I'm, I want to know more about this collaborative writing, right? But if you had the opportunity to have the power of the pen at one point and be able to write, even if you're not the one responsible for writing the entire strategic plan, if you can offer and say, if our general goal has this public component of it, let me take a stab at it. Let me take this component out of it and I can do it about, or I can go about it this way and get input from different people, draft uh, specific things and get people's opinion. But I would take it as, let me do you a favor by taking this work off of your lap rather than asking for permission or for, can you please include what I would like for that plan to say. So to me, that's how I approach it when I, I'm working with deans, when I'm working with departments. It's let me provide you language that you can react to, um, but you take a stab at it rather than people expecting them to do it when they may not necessarily feel as uh, informed uh, to be able to structure that, if, if I hear that. Um, as I'm thinking of the other one, how about put you on the spot? <laughs> <laughs> well, language is powerful, right? And so, um, in terms of telling our stories, whether it be uh, the story of community engagement on our campus, interpreting one of the five commitments and making it meaningful for our campus, um, there's a power to, to, to speaking, to writing, 
and um, I think that's been reinforced throughout the, the campus. One of the ways that I think you can make sure that words don't stop with words and they actually translate to action is to really bring in, first of all, students, um, not just leave the plan as a plan. That's one of the reasons I stressed Western Michigan University, the implementation part that was in our strategic action plans. Um, but bringing in students into that work immediately and also bringing in the community partners and, and in our case, uh, city leaders uh, to, to that action plan right away um, in the development of the action, action plan, but also the implementation of the action plan. Um, there might be many plans that just stop as plans, right? They don't get implemented. Words just kind of rest on a shelf as part of a binder or something like that. But the important thing is that um, the, the, the more awareness that you develop of this plan uh, students, their use of their language, um, community members, uh, government constituents, their use of their, their language, if they are speaking about the plan, speaking about the good work that's happening, community engagement initiatives on campus, that's, that's kind of that powerful language that uh, will circle back, lift up our colleagues, whether they be administrators, faculty, staff, or other camp campus compact members across the nation. Yeah, one of the things this makes me think of is, um do you remember those books? Maybe it was just when I was little, or maybe you bought one for someone, but where you could get a kid's name put into it. So it was like one book, but then it would say like your name in it. So then it was a story about you. I feel like that was so powerful, right? Like that was so exciting. You were in a book. And I feel like that's what you described on your campus. Like you're writing this narrative of community engagement and you're saying to people, look, here's where you are in it. Because you've been doing this and that's a part of this. And I think people act based on the narratives they have about themselves. And so it's not just about writing a narrative of this institution, it's about helping people write their own narrative that this is in. And I think that's it's one of the reasons that the, you talking about you know people finding their community engaged identity, I think is just so important and I loved that. And I think it's also, um, the intent might be there, and this might be resonate with some people, that the plans are happening, but most people approach it from the lens or from their role. And so they may not necessarily be thinking about community engagement as they're forming the student development plan, because again, the power of the pen, pen is on an individual who primarily is thinking about student development or primarily thinking about research. So being at the table and consistently reminding me, when I raise my hand at these meetings, they know what I'm gonna say. You know, They know that, oh, okay, what part of community engagement did we leave out? You know, so. And it makes a difference because it went on a card, because it went on a plan, it went on a goal, you know, and then we can reference that goal when we're making a case for it across units and say it is there, it is in our mission, it is in our goals, it is in our strategic plan, it is in our QEP, and it makes a, a better case when you're trying to communicate that. So it's really getting in there, and sometimes those words need to come from first believing before you adding them, but sometimes you already believe it and forget to add. So for us, it's just making sure that they're there for reference. Well, I'm getting the time signal from our uh, lovely and talented communications director, Molly. <laughs> so um, want to thank you all for coming to the session, for coming to the, con to the conference. Thank you all for being here and participating in the conversation. And thank everybody who's listening for listening and continuing to do that. So thank you, everybody. Have a great day. <laughs> Thanks. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. 
Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jamison, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.